quitting is when you legitimately go, I'm never going to do this again. I am done. I am. This is too hard. I'm not coming back here. And stopping is like, this was hard today. I will try again tomorrow. Like I can, I can stop for now, but I don't have to stop forever. Hello, and welcome to How to Fail Successfully, the podcast that teaches the steps to success through the stories of failures. I'm so happy that you can join me as I interview some of my favorite people and encourage them to share their story with you. I'm Matthew Carrier, and this is How to Fail Successfully. This is episode number 18 with today's guest, Annie Downs. Annie is a best-selling author and nationally known speaker based in Nashville, Tennessee. She has authored the books, Looking for Lovely, which we will reference in this episode, Let's All Be Brave, Perfectly Unique, Speak Love, and most recently, she has released a book called 100 Days to Brave. On top of all of these things, she also hosts a weekly podcast called That Sounds Fun. So in this episode, we will be diving into Annie's journey and her struggle to find her first publisher. She talks us through some of the lessons she's learned throughout her journey, including how she learned the difference between quitting and stopping. Last but not least, though, she will teach us how to fold the Rubik's Cube of bedding fitted sheets. So let's get started. This is my conversation with Annie Downs. Enjoy. All right, Annie. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining today. Oh, thanks for having me on the show. I'm really glad to be here. Well, I know who you are. Uh, You're kind of a big deal to me, and so I'm so thankful that you came on. (laughs) But kind of fill us in with what you're working on today. Well, thank you. That's very kind of you. Um, So, yeah, my name is Annie. I live in Nashville. I've been here for about a decade, and for the last six years, my full-time job has been as an author and a speaker and a podcast host. And so I do those three things um, every week. I mean, I don't write new books every week, unfortunately. I wish I had that much gifting. But um, that's what I do. I have um, seven books out now. I think the most recent was called 100 Days to Brave. It's a, yeah, like a 100-day journey towards figuring out what it looks like to be brave in your life. That is crazy. What What day is everybody on now? Okay, so for people who bought the book when it came out in October, they're in the 80s. Okay. And for the people who started on January 1st, we had a huge group of people start on January 1st, which is really fun. Um, They are on, I think, the 18th. The 18th. Okay. Okay. And and by the time this this episode airs, I'm pretty sure those October people will be done with the book. Yeah, I think so, because the October one should be done middle of February. Yeah. So those October people, congratulations. Yeah, congrats. You did it. You're 100 (laughs) days braver. You know, it's really fun to think about what that's going to be like, because no one, as of recording, not as of airing, as of recording, no one's finished the book. Yeah. Right. So it's a little different than when you release a traditional, um, a traditional book because a traditional nonfiction memoir type book, like the rest of mine are people read them in crazy people read them in a day. Yeah. Right. Or in a week. And so you get really quick feedback of 
of what they think of the full project. And with this, I have no feedback of what people think of the full project, <laughs> right? Which is so fascinating. That's it's awesome. so different. Yeah. I mean, awesome is one of the words. It's, str yeah, it's strange. It, it's definitely strange. Is it stressful? It's way different. Um, you know, it's not stressful at this point in my life. Um, and the other, the upside of this kind of way it is done is that, um, how do I phrase this? Uh, I'm hearing from a lot of people every single day, right? Because every single day people are interacting oh, with this okay. book. Yeah. Whereas like the normal book, they'll read it for, you know, they'll read it for three days and they'll finish it or they'll put it down and come back to it in a week. And so I hear from them when they were trying to, when they read a chapter they really liked or when they did another, you know, when a quote jumped out at them right now, I mean, I get tagged 40 to 50 times every day wow. of people who are on a certain day, who are just starting, who have reached a day that impacted them. And so it's more constant, but no one's finished. That's awesome. That's cool. So, yeah. yeah. It's really cool. I've really liked it. We, we've been dreaming about like, okay, what does it look like to keep offering projects like this? Yeah. Because it, there's something really attainable and, uh, easy to grip onto when the format is like this, you know, I mean, each day is only like two to three paragraphs, maybe, and not even like long, hard paragraphs. Right. And so, and so they're just these short little snippets that you can connect with. And, and I've really enjoyed seeing how people have enjoyed that part of this. It's interesting because I, I, obviously I want to get to kind of how you got to this point, but as an author though, you're sort of taking a different approach. Like you're not just writing a book and walking away, right? You're still interactive every single day in the book that you wrote. That's pretty every cool. Every dang day. Yeah, that's exactly right. But I also kind of love that because I, I hope it's said of me in the long run that I took a different approach. Like I kind of hope that's what people say about me and think about me as an author anyway. I'm really inspired by uh, authors like Madeline LaEngle who who kind of were not ever defined by a genre, mm. right? Like, I mean, she's known for A Wrinkle in Time because it's a movie and it's very popular and it won awards and um, medals and all that stuff. But, you know, she has poetry and she has nonfiction and she has a book on how to be a better writer and she has multiple novels and and so she just never was bound by a genre. She was bound by what she felt compelled to write. Mm. And, and I, I want to be like that. I want to write what I feel compelled to write and interact with my friends online and in words and through podcasts in ways that, uh, that maybe other people don't feel as compelled to do or called to do like I, like I do. I feel like from what I read, it felt like, a mix between like a storytelling and a how to like, is that kind of the approach you took as an author is to be sort of that mix? Yeah. It's probably writing? more accidentally how to, cause I don't know how to do very much. So <laughs> I am not, I am certainly not trying to, I mean, I wish I got to write a book about like, here's how you fold fitted sheets or make chicken and dumplings. Cause I'm great at both of those things, but I'm not, I'm not an expert at a lot but I am really good at telling my story and figuring out the right words to put in the right places. I, 
I hope that comes across right. I'm not bragging about it by any stretch of the imagination, but you also have to pay attention to what your giftings are and where your sweet spot is. And people kept saying to me for years before I was writing, you know how to say what I can't figure out the right words to yeah. say. I agree. And I, I agree with like, that. Yeah. Thank you. I started saying like, oh, well, maybe that's a gift. Maybe that's not just a coincidence. Maybe that's real. And, and so that's kind of one of the things that kind of pushed me towards pursuing this as a career and what pushes me on the everyday of like, what's burning in me. I try to say, and I mean, my friends laugh at me so much, Matthew, because it'll take me half an hour to write an Instagram um, post. But when, when there's over 50,000 people reading them. Yes, it's important. Yeah. And when what they know of me is how I use my words Mm. and the way I want the words to sound, that really matters to me. And so, so when I am putting words together, I'm super careful and cautious. So, so yeah, I love the storytelling part. That's what I love the most and work the hardest at. And then I also enjoy, I mean, a little bit of the how to, because I am in my mid thirties and I'm not 21, right? So I do have some life experience to share about. I certainly wouldn't label myself an expert at life, though, by any stretch. When I was reading Looking for Lovely, I I took a couple notes of questions I want to ask you. And my number one question, okay, are you ready for this? Oh, boy. I'm so ready. How do you fold a fitted sheet? Oh, great. I can totally tell you this. It's super easy. Okay. So, uh, so the trick is I, I get a little bit weird about it and I fold my twin ones different than my full ones, Okay. but or full queen, whatever. But if you take, so pretend the sheet is laying on the bed, right? Imagine that in your head, when you pull it out of the dryer, take the four corners and, and we'll take, take the corners and put them all together, right? So you're going to turn the bottom two corners inside out and stuff them into the top two corners and then take those and make it into where your hand is holding the corners. Is that making sense? Am I describing this well? Your hand is holding all four corners. Okay. Yeah. And so then, and then I lay it down on the ground and turn that into a square. Like you kind of fold Uh, the left side over a little bit, fold the top down a little bit, turn it into a square and then you just fold it. Hmm. So the trick is putting all the corners together. That's you, the trick of how you fold a fitted sheet. Are you going to make a YouTube video about this? Dude, I have one. It's my number you have one, one? <laughs> video. Yes, you'll have to link to it for people. But yeah, it's like I totally my will. One. Uh, over 16,000 people have watched me fold a fitted sheet eight years ago in 2010. <laughs> it's terrible. But I, I feel like I need to do a new one now that I'm a professional at this. It was literally like when I was... Eight years ago, I mean, I, I had started writing, but it was nowhere near my full-time job. And I, I was a blogger who did, like, videos sometimes. Yeah. On my, and so it's one of those. Um, hey, are we going to tell people how we met? Because I think it's a hilarious story. Yeah, I, yes, absolutely. Um, Were you going to get there? Am I, am I jumping ahead? No, 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 no. I, I was trying to figure out how I could tell people because it's, it's hilarious <laughs> that uh, – yeah, so – Well, we met the day that my book came out. Yes. The day 100 Days to Brave came out. And and I'll tell my perspective because okay, great. I'm you tell sh- your side and then I'll tell my side. Yeah, because I'm sure I don't want to hear your side, but my side is that <laughs> when I started this podcast, it's very difficult sometimes to find people willing to, hey, um, can you come on my podcast and share your biggest failures with everybody? Right. Right. It's hard to find that those people that are willing to to sit down and have those conversations. And so I was talking to a friend of mine about this. She said, you should interview Annie Downs. Annie is an author and I just finished her book and it's great. And she talks about a lot of the same stuff that you talk about 
on your podcast. And I was like, yeah, okay, that'll be on my six months, eight months down the road. After I've gotten some experience, I'll reach out to her and I'll see what she says. So I'm in Barnes and Noble and I see these three girls giggling and laughing and <laughs> taking books off the bookshelf right. and, and writing in them. A, that's strange because we're at Barnes and Noble and who takes books out and, and uh-huh. writes on them. Well, then they leave. And so I tell my wife, I said, hey, go over there and, and see, see what they were doing to that book. And she grabs the book and she brings it over and it's called 100 Days to Brave. And she opens up the back cover and it says Annie Downs. I was like, that's Annie Downs. Like, that's who that was. And, and <laughs> but I hadn't left the store yet. And she hadn't left the store yet. And so like right. she – so I was like, I, I, I got to – I just have to go say hi to her or, or just kind of tell her how funny it is that I just heard her name. I just was introduced to her book. And there she is. And so I ran over her. I ran, ran over to her. I was like, hey, Annie, you don't know me, but uh, would you be willing to open up uh, and share your stories of all your failures? And yeah, and so that's where we are today. Now you can tell your side. I I don't know. That's very close. That's it. (laughs) I I I was what we do the day the book releases. I've done this the last couple of books is go around to the local bookstores in my town and and autograph the copies that they have on the shelf and meet the managers or talk to the managers. A lot of them I know at this point and talk to managers and thank them for caring because you know they have so many options of what they put on shelves. Yeah, And so it always just is really, I'm really grateful that they continue to put my stuff on their shelves. And so I like to go meet all them. So that's what we were doing. We were at, we had gone to a couple of targets that were carrying, that carry a hundred days to brave and, and we had gone to Lifeway and then we were at the Barnes and Noble. And so we were signing and then right as we're leaving, you're like, uh, Hey, I thought I was in trouble. <laughs> I originally, th- I thought, Oh, this guy's not happy. I wonder what I did that got that. I like, I wonder what he didn't like about me signing books. Cause I could tell you didn't work there, but I thought, Oh, he's stopping me. Cause something's not right. That's nope. so funny. Do and I so give off do that? This. Do I give off that vibe of, of... No, 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 not at all. <laughs> I just I constantly assume I'm in trouble for what I've done. That's, That's just funny. kind of my, my baseline belief system. <laughs> That's awesome. So whatever I've done is probably, uh, probably something worth getting in trouble for. <laughs> well, let's kind of dive in. I mean, can you kind of take us back to the beginning? Let's go back to before sure. you were a best-selling author, speaker, podcaster. Like it wasn't always this way. So how did yeah. you get to this point? No, it didn't. No, I actually went to the university of Georgia. Bless my heart. We just lost the national championship. Oh, I know, dude. Let's talk about failure. <laughs> let me tell you. Georgia all the way. Listen, so in a matter of 11 months, let me tell you what happened. The Atlanta Falcons lost the Super Bowl, yeah. which is my team that mm-hmm. I love. I wore my Deion Sanders jersey from 1989 yes. during the Super Bowl. So I, we lost the Super Bowl February of 2017. The Georgia Bulldogs lost the na- national championship in January of 2018. The Atlanta Falcons lost a playoff game in in January of 2018, and the Tennessee Titans lost a playoff game in January of 2018. It's been a pretty brutal uh, 11 months for my teams. And you're not you're 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 missing the point that they were up in Uh, all of those games. That's right. That's right. At some point, all the teams should have won, and they didn't. Yes, Yes. it's terrible. Um, Okay, so I went to University of Georgia, and I actually studied uh, early childhood education because I wanted to be an elementary school teacher. And the truth is, Matthew, that I like literally. I only have one skill set, one gifting. I can entertain people long enough that they learn something. <laughs> and that's all I did when I taught school, when it, whether it's fourth graders in a classroom for 180 days or 10,000 people in an arena for 40 minutes 
or it doesn't matter. It is entertain them long enough that they learn something. That's what I'm good at. And so I taught school. And so I studied elementary school. I taught school for five years. Meanwhile, I was volunteering at my local church with their student ministry, with the youth group. And one of, and we had like all these high school girls that would come over to my house and we'd talk about the Bible. And, and so I was writing lessons for them every week. And at the end of the semester, this one year in, t- in 2006, the, one of the girls said, Hey, will you print off one more copy of all these lessons and staple them like a book so I can give them to my friend? And I thought, did I just write a book? Like, <laughs> I didn't mean to write a book. I just was writing lessons for the girls yeah. that come to my house. I guess there was always a chance I would write a book only because like we grew up not, not watching TV. We grew up reading all the time. I, one of my grandmothers was a librarian. The other one owned a bookstore and I worked in the bookstore every Saturday of my elementary school life. I mean, like I was surrounded by books my whole life. And I always am, uh, regret that I didn't start writing while my grandparents still owned a bookstore. Cause I think I'd have had like a real prominent shelf placement <laughs> in their bookstore. I think they'd, I'd had a, they'd have been really proud, but, um, so that's kind of how the first, and that is my first book that came out. It's called perfectly unique. Now the, the part that I love for people to know is that I wrote that book in 2016 and it did not hit shelves until 2012. I'm sorry. I wrote it in 2006. Six. Yeah. It did not hit shelves until 2012. Wow. And so, yeah, that is a long time because a lot of people think you uh, write a book and it immediately comes out and then you're off to the races. And that just wasn't my career. That wasn't my experience. I signed with my first agent in 2009 we broke up in 2010 because that first book, Perfectly Unique, got 47 no's from publishers. There aren't even that many publishers. <laughs> like, that's multiple no's from the same publishers, right? But it got 47 no's. And so my agent and I just went, like, what are we doing? Like, why are you spending your time? You're not making any money. I'm not making any money. We tried and we failed. Wow. And and so that year, that was um, spring of 2010, by the fall of 2010, my parents and I decided to spend the money together, and I've paid them back since, but to spend the money to self-publish the first book okay, um, because it was finished. And what I said at the time is, I just want my grandkids to know that I wrote a book once. Yeah. Like, I want one copy of this to exist into my family line. And I thought that was kind of going to be it. And then, because I already had a blog following and I already had... A, a decent number of Twitter followers for the time and for where Twitter was in 2009. And um, I, I had friends who had been walking that journey with me of writing the book via my blog and via my socials that when the book came out, they all bought it because they had been there with me. So we self-published it and said, hey, we'll print a couple of thousand copies if anybody wants them. And it sold well enough that Zondervan, a publisher based out of Grand Rapids, came back to us and said, hey, we'd like to publish that book now. Now. Because yeah. we, pr- yeah, right. Because <laughs> uh, they had seen that the sales showed that there was an interest at least enough for some reason, right? For at least to do something with. And so that's kind of how it started. Speaking is very similar, how speaking started, that I was serving in a local capacity. I was serving the the church I attended and the youth pastor was sick one Sunday and said, can you teach tonight? 
And I said, sure. And, you know, again, it's just operating in my skill set, like entertaining these students long enough. They learn something, whether it's math or the Bible or how to be brave or whatever it is. I just had to entertain them until they took away a nugget of some kind. And one of those students asked me to come speak at another event. And one of those students asked me to come speak at another event. And so I probably spent the first, and then when my book came out, I got a speaking spot on a tour called that used to be around called girls of grace, which was like, uh, yeah, a, I know girls of grace. Yeah. 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 So yeah. I used to be one of the speakers on girls of grace for the 2012, 13 and 13, 14 school years. Okay. And that was every other weekend for the whole school year. And so, um, it was awesome. I mean, we, I loved it. It was an amazing event. And so I spent the first two years of my career, mostly talking to and writing for teenage girls. And when that tour ended and my first adult book, let's all be brave came out is when things kind of started shifting to writing for adults and speaking at adult events. When you first got started, did you ever have a bad speaking engagement? Mm -hmm. Like, was there a time when you were like, I want to forget that time ever existed? Um, the worst times I've had have never been because of the speaking of engagement. They've always been because of me, right? Because of, uh, my, if I didn't prepare well, or if I was off my game, or if there were circumstances that nobody could control that messed with my mojo. I think of one time that I was by myself, which I don't travel by myself anymore because of this exact event. I was by myself and I spoke in one side of Ooh, what state was it? Minnesota, maybe. I spoke on one side of Minnesota on a Saturday night and another side of Minnesota on a Sunday night. And so I had to drive. It was like a Saturday afternoon women's conference. And then I drove across the state to do a church event on that Sunday. And during the Saturday event, the crowd just had gotten gotten off. They had, they thought someone else was going to be there besides me. And they, the person they were really excited to see was right after me. And it just like was bad. It was bad, bad, bad. Like they, the, yeah, it was bad. It was so bad. And so I left that stage super, um, lacking in confidence Yeah, and certain of all the things in my head. And the, the thing about traveling by yourself for me now for, I have some friends who are on the road about as much as I am and they're moms and I'm not a mom. I'm single and no kids. And, and when moms are on the road, they are like, Oh, I love that. We get, I love traveling by myself Time because away. it's quiet. And, yeah. <laughs> and so for me, the opposite happens because when I travel by myself and I've had a, you know, I had that happen on that stage and then when you don't have any humans there with you who know you outside of that job, it's really easy to believe the hype, both positive and negative, mm. right? So I can either believe that I'm as amazing as everyone says I am, or I'm as terrible as I think I am. And, and something that John Acuff says is you never believe the top 10% or the bottom 10%. Yeah. But those are the ones who leave Amazon reviews, right? And those <laughs> are the ones who, who are going to tweet at you and, and, and you just can't believe either of them, right? I would love believing the top 10%. I hope they don't ever stop, but the bottom 10% can shut up, right? <laughs> but, uh, and so my problem with that travel event was that it, I left being my own bottom 10% and carried it into the next event and was just not confident the whole time. And it was really hard. And so that, that, that one always sticks out as like, I learned a massive lesson to 
not, um, how do I phrase it? I, I just learned the lesson that I don't want to travel by myself. Yeah. I don't want to have the opportunity to listen to my own head that much. Hmm. And so I don't anymore. I always take a person with me. In your book, Looking for Lovely, you talk about having this group of Vanderbilt, I think it was baseball players, or, or this group of guys yeah. around you. And that was the first time you were introduced to a different mindset, like an ath- athlete's mindset, this mindset yeah. of like, uh, you know, failure is not an option or, or, or just they have a different approach to failure. Can you talk about that a little bit more? Yes. Yeah, because living in Nashville and the church I attend, we have um, a lot of Vanderbilt students that go to our church. And there was a season where a ton of the baseball players were at our church. And and I just love them. They're still some of my very favorite dudes. I keep up with a lot of them. Um, I'm also for, I've just, because of friends and how Nashville works, I've become friends with a couple of guys who play for the Titans. And, and what I see over and over again is that athletes have a mentality that, that failure isn't the end of the story, right? Like I think so many times when I'm watching a football game and the team, you know, the team is losing by 20 points in the fourth quarter, they either can give up or they can rally. And, and more times than not, they at least look like they're trying till the very end. And that's a really unique to athletes mentality. That's not a normal person mentality I haven't found. And so I've been really inspired spending time with uh, my buddy, Tim Shaw is somebody that your listeners should know. And you should know he's Played for the Titans, was a captain for the Titans for a while, and about four years ago, maybe five years ago, was diagnosed with ALS. And over the last year since he's been diagnosed, his body has just um, turned on him and and caused a lot of pain and loss of movement. And, you, you know, he was the captain of a professional football team, and now he... Uh, doesn't use his arms very well and has a hard time walking. And I mean, it's just been, it's been heartbreaking to watch, but also really motivating and beautiful to watch because he's never given up. Right. And it's because he's got that athlete mentality of like, this doesn't, this isn't what makes me quit. And he taught me this really important thing of like, there's a difference between quitting and stopping and Quitting is when you legitimately go, I'm never going to do this again. I am done. I am, this is too hard. I'm not coming back here. And stopping is like, this was hard today. I will try again tomorrow. Like I can, I can stop for now, but I don't have to stop forever. And I think that is just really, really impactful to me. All right. That concludes the first half of my conversation with Annie. Don't quit. If you need to stop for a second or a day or a week, stop, but don't quit get back into it. All right, so in the second half of my conversation with Annie, we talk about her definition of success and her definition of failure. And I I love this this question that gets posed to the guests because I love hearing everyone's different answer because everybody has a different answer. Everyone's definition of failure is different. Everyone's definition of success is different. And what I wanna do is I wanna encourage you is that you may look around and say, I'm not successful. But what you really need to do is reevaluate your definition of success. Because I guarantee you, you are successful. Now, we'll get back into the second half of my conversation with Annie, but I just wanted to encourage you and let's hear what Annie's definition of success and failure is. Enjoy.
it's massively important for people to, to, to figure out for themselves. And you've said this before on other episodes, but to figure out for themselves what the definition of failure and the definition of success Right. Because if you don't define success and you don't define failure, you will not know when you get there and you'll make a lot of assumptions. And and so for me, I have to define whether hitting the New York Times bestseller list is going to be success or failure for me. If I don't hit a list, is that failing or or is that not a big deal? And I have to go through just about every area of my life being single. I have to say, like, you know, is if this relationship doesn't go to marriage, does that mean I failed? Hmm. Like, wh- what are the lines for me of what's going to be success and what's going to be failure? And, and there is a grace in that where you go like, okay, it is okay to fail. It, trying something new doesn't make you a failure, right? And it not working doesn't make you a failure. It's when you try something new, and that's what makes you brave, I think. Yeah. And so it's just really... Um, I am really moved by the idea of, of giving yourself grace around recognizing when you have decided what failure is and you have failed and, and going like, okay, that is good. That is going to happen. I mean, my, my richest friends are entrepreneurs who have lost a lot of money before they made a lot of money, Yeah, but no one wants to talk about that. Chris Rock said, I heard him in an interview one time say that the one of the top things he learned from Lauren Michaels is you always lose your first money. Hmm. And, and he said, so when I went bankrupt after I had already, or lost, I'm not, don't quote me on him going bankrupt, but he says something like when I lost all my money after I was already a massive success, I remembered that Lauren had told me you always lose your first money and you just keep going, you know? And I think we need to hear people saying things like that so that we can go, okay, okay, I, success doesn't have to be defined as A, B, and C. Success can be something smaller or bigger or different than what anyone else. I have goals in my career that, that will be labeled as success if I hit that no one else is ever going to care about. But I care. And I, and I have goals like that. And so I think that's really important. Can you share that with us? Yeah. I mean, so let me think of what would come to my mind. I mean, how, how my employees feel about our company when they leave by choice or not by choice is a big place of success or failure for me. Mm. Um, it doesn't mean they have to be happy with the decision or that they aren't moving on to something better, but I have some words I want them to say around what the experience was like when they worked at our company that like, I want them to feel like we were generous and I want them to feel like we encourage them to work hard and rest hard. I want them to feel like they grew as humans, not just as workers when they were here. And so no one who reads my books or listens to my podcast or hears me on a stage is ever going to care about us hitting that goal. I really care about that. And if people left and felt like I was stingy, that's a massive failure to me as a leader. As an author, how would you fail, you personally? Um, currently, I'm doing it, actually, because I, um, I have a book in me that I'm not writing. And, and so for me, failure now to tell you the truth, this is from years of setting expectations that were not met and deciding whether that was a failure or not. So for example, the New York times list, that is literally in my job, that is the only way you get recognition for a sales number, right? Is when you get global, global recognition. Yes. Yes. And so, but uh, the people who make the New York Times bestselling list, 
it's not it's not like sound scan or book scan that is literally a number and you're either the top or you're not it's not subject it's not objective like that it's subjective uh, okay they the men who and maybe women but the people in the new york times office who are making that list are, are using some other factors to determine whether you make the list or not and so it's a, it's a little bit of a loser's game right because because you can't you can't know all the factors they're going to do so so i can't control at all whether i please them Right, but you can't still, buy you can't heart. buy five thousand yeah. books and say, yeah. "Look, I'm going to be on the list now." That's exactly right. Yeah. You can't do that, and so I had to remove that goal as a spot of success or failure for me. And then I had to go. I would love to hit the list. Still, I mean, don't hear me wrong. I would love to hit the list, but it's not. It, I don't fail when I don't anymore. But for me, currently, I have a book in me that has been rolling around that I've outlined on my wall that I don't have a book deal for and nobody's interested in, but I need to write it. Mm. And I am not writing it. And that is failure for me. There is, success for me is writing every book that lives inside of me from now until the day I stop doing this job or that I stop living because I think I'll be writing forever. And so success is writing every book that lives in me or comes to me. Failure is, is not doing that, is giving up on that. You know, apart from that book inside of you, do you feel like you are a successful author apart from not writing that current book? Yes, I do. And why? I think that um, uh, because it's my job. It's able to, for five and a half years, six years actually, in April of 2018, it'll be six years, um, April 1st, April Fool's. Um, April Fool's on me. I didn't have a job. I haven't had a job for six years. So, yeah, so that's why it feels like a success. I've been able to run a company with employees, with staff that has put out consistent, good quality product for six years. So that to me feels like a success. You know, you like to talk a lot about journaling. You love journaling. As an author, though, yes. why journal? Like, isn't that the same thing as writing a book? Why not just write a book instead of journaling? Oh, it's not. Nobody gets to read my journal. <laughs> it's, it's different. Um, so for me, journaling is my, because writing is still what I'm passionate about. And writing is what I love. And, and so that doesn't mean it ever leaves being a hobby, even when it becomes a job. And so it is still for me, journaling for me is my personal connection with myself and my God and my words and my experience. And that usually is very different than what comes out in a book. And so it, it informs what comes out in a book to be sure, as you've experienced in Looking for Lovely and as people will experience in my other books, that, that my journal informs what happens in a book, but it is not the same thing. I write much slower in my journal. I write much more personally in my journal. Um, there is zero filter. Yeah. So with journaling, so it's just super personal for me and it's really important to me. It's how I start almost every day of kind of like process. It, it, what I learned early on is if I didn't process in my journal by myself, I accidentally processed publicly. And, and while I am willing to share some vulnerable parts of my story, it's not the reader's job to process with me. Uh, it's the reader's job to read my experience or job. I use job lightly, but you know what I mean? Like, yeah. yeah reader wants to be a part of the experience. They don't want to process with me. And so now through journaling and making that a real part of my daily life, it is, uh, I'm significantly less prone to publicly process, which is 
according to my counselor, significantly healthier. Yeah. I, I don't like to write. Um, yeah. Oh, sad. I know. It's sad. And I, I kind of wish I did. Uh, but what I, what I I think the reason why I don't is because I spend I write and then I edit I write and then I oh, edit yeah. uh, and I feel like I don't ever get far along because I'm editing myself the whole time. Yeah, no, no, no. In fact, you know Hemingway's one of his most famous writing quotes is to write drunk and edit sober, <laughs> right? Because you've got to just get every. I tell that to people all the time when we're talking about writing. I say just get it out. Like no one's gonna read it. Stop acting like the you know the queen of England is going to read your first draft. No one's going to read your first draft and people. There will be a lot of people, especially with a traditional book publishing deal. So I wrote a book that comes out in October of 2018. I finished writing the first draft in July of 2017. And we will, I bet 10 people will have their hands on it before it is read publicly. Wow. And so, and because ten I know different people, it, yeah, yeah, ten yeah. different people will will put their opinions and their editing and change the book before it is read and consumed by the public. And so I know that now going into writing, so I can write stuff and go, ah, I think this part's stupid, but I'm going to put it in there and let someone else take it out. <laughs> and then I'll either take it out later or someone else will take it out. And so it's a it's a really yes, you just need to let stuff out and not self edit in your first draft. I, you can't self-edit in your first draft or you never finish writing. Do you feel relieved when your book finally makes it to the bookshelf or have you already mentally sort of moved on? It's it's both, right? Because I, I am so glad. It's so funny because you go from like it being this document. So for example, the next book, it's called, uh, well, actually we think it's called Remember God, but I'm not totally sure, but we'll call it Remember God for now. Um, the next book, Remember God, you know, I have been living in it for two years, but it's always been a document on my computer or something I printed out at the FedEx office store and spiral bound myself, right? Yeah. And so the first day you hold one, it's amazing. Mm. And then the second day you get a box, you get four boxes of 50, right? <laughs> so, so you literally go from like, I've never touched it. Yay, I get to touch it to like, Oh, <laughs> every, here's all of them that now anybody can touch. So, so what is removed from it by the day it comes out is the sting of the stories are removed from it for me because I've read it so much. I've thought about it so much. I've made sure I've wanted to tell what I've told. So the, the thing that people feel connected to, and I'm so grateful, the vulnerability and the stories and the way people go, wow, I can't believe you told that. Or wow, that's, that really feels like what me too. That feels like what I'm walking through and no one's ever said that before. Uh, the sting of all that is gone by the time it's a print book. Okay. And so what's, what's left is the appreciation for good editors, for a good experience and grateful that, that the doors have opened for me to tell stories that matter to me. And, uh, and really grateful to God that there are people who want to read, yeah, still read uh, books and want to read what I write. And so, and so that's kind of how I feel by the time it comes out. I haven't necessarily moved on to the next project, except that I'm probably, in order to meet my financial goals, I'm probably working on the next project. When you start that next project, how often are you writing? Uh, I like to write fast and write, um, I write hard and fast when I do a first draft. 
So I can usually get through a first draft. It is my full-time job. I don't, I, I have speaking seasons and writing seasons. Okay. And so I usually am not on the road when I have a book, when I'm under a book contract and I am in the writing season. And so I will write 2000 to 2,500 words a day, hmm. Monday through Friday for three months, two to three months. Wow. Um, and, but that's all I do. Yeah. yeah. But that's all I do. So if I do that in an hour on a July afternoon, I go to the pool. But if that takes me 12 hours on a July afternoon and I eat two meals sitting at my computer, so it is. Right. And so that it, it kind of, I do it by word count instead of by hours because I can tell myself you have to sit here for five hours and write. And then I've taken nine Buzzfeed quizzes <laughs> and I've written 200 words and I get up and walk away. Yeah. You know, so I do word count instead of um, hours per se. You know, I remember the first time I was reading 100 Days to Brave and not knowing you as an author, uh, I just, I loved it. I felt like I knew you. I was laughing along with you as oh, the author. Oh, thank you. Like, I think that's so much fun when you get to know oh, the good. author through their writing without ever meeting them. Yeah, it's really fun. We have this sentence that hangs in the office that we kind of build everything around. And again, this is another personal uh, label of success that no one else in the world would have. But we have this sentence and it says, Annie is your friend you get coffee with. And sometimes you talk about the Bible <laughs> and everything we do, we want it to feel like that. And yeah. so for you to say that is such a huge compliment and such a, 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 a bell ringer of success today for me, because that's what we work really hard to do is that everyone who picks up a book or follows me on Instagram or listens to me on the podcast that they go, I mean, I know this is crazy, but Annie feels like she's my friend. Mm. You know, people say that to me in airports all the time. And, and I love it because that is exactly what success is to me is that the people who read my words or interact with my words feel like we're friends. So, so looking for lovely, I, I obviously you're a female author. It's, right. Primarily writing for a female audience. It is. That's true. And yet I read the book because I wanted to learn more about you. Thank you, buddy. But while I was reading it, though, I'll tell you what. There was one little story that you told that was like a, a, a punch in the gut for me. Oh, wow. It's when you were watching back a video of yourself from a few years prior. Mm -hmm. And somebody made a comment. And you said that was the first time you realized you weren't what people expected you to be. Yeah, 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 when I was a kid. Yeah, and it was it was yeah. a, about um your appearance and your and your yeah, your weight right. or and I was yep. like, you know, as a you know, as a guy and I think about my wife and I'm like, man, it's those type of stories really kind of put in perspective what people have to deal with on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, right? Because everybody has the eye-opening experiences of real everyone if they took time to think about it, which this is part of what a writer's job is, right, is to observe my, the world I live in and write it. And so I spend a lot of time looking at my world, whether that's good or bad or either. Um, but everybody, if they thought about it, could think about the time when they had the realization that they weren't living up to expectations they did not know existed. Mm. Right. And that's what happened to me is I, all of a sudden I realized that there were these physical expectations that, that people were holding me to that I did not realize existed until someone made a comment saying that I wasn't living up to them. And, 
And once you know them, you can't unknow them, right? Yeah. Once you know the expectations that the world has on you, whether it's your physical appearance or your professional excellence or your relational experience or your spiritual experience. You know, there are people who start down a new faith walk and they will walk into a church or a synagogue or a gathering place for the first time. And they sit down in the first row, having no idea that everyone in that church knows that only the pastor's family sits in the front row. Yeah. Right. Like it, all of a sudden they are trying something new. They've, they're totally confident. And in one moment they have realized that there was an expectation they didn't know existed that they did not meet or that they messed up. And that is a, to me, that's a really painful and embarrassing and hard thing to have happen. It's going to happen all the time in our lives, but yeah, that, I mean, I think it's very eye-opening to realize I don't ever want to be the person who introduces other people to expectations they aren't meeting. Mm. Do you think that you are aware of your emotions and situations around you because you're an author? Or do you think maybe you're an author because of your emotions and situations around you? <laughs> right? <laughs> that is the question, isn't it? Like, chicken or the egg here, yeah. right? Like, first, I don't know. I think that I was always prone to be a storyteller. And so, because I always look at the world around me. And so I think the author part of it probably came out of the storytelling part of it. But yeah, I, I do think, I do think probably I was an observer first and found a medium with which to express those observations. Hmm. Well, but I'm I also Enneagram seven and we tend to like, like everything that's going on around us. And so so that's part of my personality type as well. So your your transition couldn't have been any more perfect because that was going to be my next Great. question for you. I I had a previous guest mention something about the Enneagram and I ignored it. <laughs> but when I started listening to your podcast, I mean, you talk about it so often and like mm -hmm. that's very important to you. And so I actually went on and I did a test. Because <gasps> okay. What are you? I need, hold on, hold on. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. This I just, I, yes, I just this. needed to know, like, what is the whole thing about? And yeah. as, after I took the test, and I'll tell you what it is in a second, but after okay. I took the test, I started reading through, like, the description of myself, and I felt so vulnerable because I'm like, I don't want people to know this about me. Yes, Like, right? it was so spot on right. that, you know, I was, I was blown away, but I'm a, I'm a number three. Of course you're a three. I was totally going to guess you were a three based on what you just said and knowing a little bit about your career. So yes, it, it, threes are beautiful. We need threes. I actually was just reading a comment. Someone just left a comment on my blog, kind of poo-pooing on the Enneagram and saying like, if you want to be a better person, don't look at yourself, look to God, your higher power and, and, well, and sure, but whatever, yeah. maybe that the Enneagram makes you think about yourself too much. But what the Enneagram has done for me has really opened my eyes to some shadow sides of my personality mm -hmm. and to some of the reasons. It's not like Myers-Briggs that just tells you your strengths or strength finders. It, as you experience personally, it will tell you, Enneagram will tell you, here's why you do what you do. Here's some motivation behind what you're doing. Yes. And it helps you learn how to do life better, or at least it has for me. So, man, we need threes on this planet. Y'all achieve. Y'all get things done. I'm so grateful. Uh, you know, I, I, I was like, yes, this is me. And then I started reading some of the ways yeah. that I can improve. And I was like, no, you're right. Right. <laughs> you're I know. right. I'm and, sorry. And I, and I, actually, I actually think that that's 
why I'm embracing this podcast because it's really, really? it's stretching that part of me that I think I yeah, need to Yeah, to improve. talk about failure for a three. I actually have a friend who's a, th- a male, another male who's a three. And the other day he just said to me, I'm trying to find my failures and my feelings. Mm. Yeah. He was like, these are the two things I have to work to look for instead of always focusing on the good and always focusing on what I did right. What are my failures and my feelings? Mm. Out of curiosity, are you a New Year's resolution person? I do experiments, New Year's experiments, because here's why. Everyone quits resolutions because they're just resolutions, but you don't quit experiments, right? Like everybody wants to know what happens at the end of an experiment. That's why science class is awesome. You never walk away halfway through a science experiment because you want to see what becomes of Mm. what you started. And so I do New Year's experiments where I say at the beginning of the year, how would my life be different at the end of the year if I fill yeah. in the blank? And then I, so far, I've really done it and, and seen, I did it. The big one was in 2016, which just sounds insane. But I said, how would my life be different if I didn't eat dessert this year at all, no matter what? Like, how would my life be different? Would my health be significantly different? Would my emotions be different? How would I be different at the end of 2016 if I didn't eat desserts? And... And it was really hard and really challenging, but I didn't quit because I really was curious how my life would be different at the end. And how was it? Um, it was really good for me to realize how much I turned to dessert for <laughs> uh, emotion to meet emotional needs that it is not supposed to meet. I realized that it did not hurt my social life near as much as I thought it would. And I was healthier and I'm healthier because of it. And so it is adjusted how I treat desserts in my real life now. I did not stay at the zero dessert life, but I, um, I was really glad I did it. Now, do you do any type of routines? Are you like a morning routine or a night routine type of person? Yes, I am. I tend to do the same things in the morning and at night when I'm the healthiest version of me. When I'm not a healthy version of me, uh, I can tell that is true because my systems are going out the window. So what's a morning routine look like for you? Yeah, so I get up every day at six um, and I will make tea and have breakfast, a banana or yogurt or something. And I'll read for a little bit. I don't like rushing in the morning. So even though I don't go to work until nine, I like getting up at six because it's quiet and my phone isn't doing anything yet. And I don't start using my phone until eight. And so I really have two hours to kind of read and get ready and do whatever I want before um before the world really kicks in. And so that's what I do from six to eight. And then from eight to nine, I usually like kind of start working. I kind of mosey towards the office and, you know, we'll have some more tea. We'll finish getting ready, listen to a podcast, and then I'm going for the day. So, but I usually spend that time reading, journaling, um, that kind of stuff, thinking through what my day is going to be like. Sometimes I work on my to-do list during that little window of time. So that's what every morning looks like for me during, on a normal work day. That's awesome. Well, we're out of time. I just want to thank you again for coming on and sharing your story with us. Oh, of course. I'm grateful for you having me on the show. Absolutely. And we'll see you next time. Thanks, Annie. That was my conversation with Annie. I really hope that you enjoyed it. My hope is that you were able to take away some lessons from her stories and immediately apply that knowledge to your own life. That's the main reason I'm doing this podcast. I want to open the doors to conversations with these successful or high-profile people to reveal that they have struggles just like you and I. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can either send me an email or go to my iTunes and leave a review. Whether it's a positive or negative review, every review matters. 
The last thing I want to leave you with is this. If you feel like Annie's message could help a friend or a peer, a family member or a stranger, I'd encourage you to share this episode with them. Let's get these encouraging real life stories out to all of those that need to hear it today. Remember that success is not final and failure is not fatal. See you next time.